0: Well, good morning once again and greetings from Visalia Christian Reformed Church. Uh, My wife and I have lived down there for about 10 years or so. And next week, I believe uh, Pastor Joel, Brinkema from Visalia, will be here. So I will be praying for you for that experience. (laughs) He he will undoubtedly uh, make some sort of jab at me. So I figured I need to get one in. And if you can give him a hard time in any way at all, that would be great. This morning, we're reading from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 6. I believe that was on page 1,850 in your pew Bibles, if you're using those. And we're reading 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 19. This is Paul's teaching to Timothy, who's a pastor in, in Ephesus, a small church in Ephesus, and he's teaching about money. But godliness with contentment is a great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we could take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and it's a many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in His own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, They will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Perhaps you've heard of an experiment uh, that's done on, on little children to test their developmental stage to see where they're at. I'm sure you've seen this. It's a simple thing and you specifically are testing for their ability to understand the idea of a delayed gratification. And it's a simple little test that involves just putting uh, one cookie in front of a child and tell them that they can have this one cookie right now or in 10 minutes, if they'll wait, they can have three cookies. And young kids who haven't I sort of develop this sense of, of time and the ability to understand a, a future reward and delay that, that treat on that treat on purpose uh, they just they just go for the one uh, they can't handle it all they hear is you know you can have a cookie right now or not now. Right, that's all they understand. But an older kid who has some sense of, of this, can, it's almost like they can see into the future, right? They can see if I just can wait 10 minutes, then those three cookies are much uh, better than the one. And if you, I don't know if you need to do cookies, but if you do give my kids cookies, you can actually. Those, they're at the ages where the one will go for the one cookie right now. The other, I think, I think she could probably figure it out that it'd be better to wait. You can try that. It's great fun to do sociological tests on your kids. But the point here in, in our text. Paul is making a similar sort, of, similar sort of case, a similar sort of point uh, to the readers, and it's this truth that's in a much grander scale than cookies and a 10-minute wait. For Paul here, it's the it's present age versus this coming age, this future age. But the reward, if we can get some sort of sense of it, it is so great that any sacrifice that we might go through now will certainly be worth it. In this letter that Paul's addressed to Timothy again, who's this young pastor in this uh, fledgling congregation in in Ephesus. And Ephesus is no small town. It's actually a a pretty large and and well-known town. It's a port city. So there's lots of travel uh, going in and out of the large harbor, which which means uh, ships and, and people and goods, which translates into money for the city. It's a pretty large, large, important city at the time. And diverse city with all different people coming through And this church plant, uh, though small, is also uh, diverse in in thought and background and race. And in Ephesus, it's the sort of place where money could easily become a stumbling point for Christians. How is it that, that this new congregation, these people of Christ, are supposed to understand money, especially in an affluent city where money is equated with? With status and with prestige, where having wealth means that you'd be honored in the streets, that people might defer to you, that they would seek to serve you. A place where money is a source of security, a source of honor, a source of even hope for the future. And it was clear to Paul that there are those who are in Ephesus who've confused the matter of of material wealth and the Christian faith. Just before what we've read this morning, just one verse before, in verse 5, Paul addressed them. He's saying that there are those who have a corrupt mind and they've been robbed of the truth and they think that godliness is a means toward attaining financial gain. For whatever reason, some people, perhaps even within this congregation, have come to think and teach that the purpose of living a godly life is actually to attain wealth. That money will flow into your life from godly living. And that essentially is the prosperity gospel that still exists today. But being a diverse city, uh, this was not the only perspective on money and on religious living that was floating around in Ephesus. Another teaching at the time is something called ascetic Gnosticism. And Paul had warned of this a couple chapters earlier in this letter to Timothy, in chapter 4. There were also those people, while there are some who think godliness will lead to financial wealth and gain, there are those who believe that this world, that the creation, that the matter, that our bodies even, that these are enemies of happiness and of perfection. So these ascetic Gnostics, they sought to deny all things of the world and all desires of, of the body and of the flesh. And so all the things that are associated with those desires are are evil. So money itself, wealth itself, is something that should be shunned, it should be held in check. These things are inherently evil to succumb to the desires that your body might have. Money is to be disregarded. It's actually better to remain poor. It's better to deny as much as you can the physical desires that your body might have. These are two views in Ephesus floating around, and Paul recognized both of them, that both of them are problematic. And in this little teaching on money that we've read, Paul definitely dismantled both false teachings, and he, he painted a new picture of what the truly rich life might look like, and how it's out there for those who have little, and also for those who have much. So to those who sought to attain more wealth, he says, look, this desire the love for money, it leads to all kinds of evil. Your pursuit for that money, it leads to evil. There's people, he says, who've gone chasing money and in their pursuit for it, they've actually wandered away. They've left the faith. And instead of actually finding happiness, they find grief. Instead of... uh, Attaining and actually gaining even in the pursuit for wealth, they actually end up losing. Instead of looking for that financial gain, then Paul says to seek godliness, seek contentment. Food and, and clothing. We'll be content with that. That will be enough. In that simple little paragraph, Paul renounced the ascetic Gnostics. It's not the wealth or the money itself, that are inherently evil, Paul's saying. It's, it's that desire for money. It's the love for it that leads to evil. And further, the basic needs and desires of the, of the flesh, those are not inherently evil by themselves. Paul said that we could be content with food and with, with clothing. And that word for clothing, it literally means a covering. And likely might even include a, a dwelling. We'll be content with those. Satisfying those physical needs is not a bad thing, it's not an evil thing. It's actually necessary for contentment. Paul is saying, you don't need to be content when you're starving uh, and naked, but it's the desire to become rich. That's where the problem really lies. And scripture itself, it testifies to this truth. It's the desire for wealth that led Jacob to deceive and to rob his uncle Laban. It led Achan to steal some of the plunder from Jericho and to hide it under his tent. It led many false prophets to give false prophecies of of encouragement to uh, the rulers and to kings so that they might be paid. It led a rich young ruler to turn away from Jesus. It led this rich man to ignore the poor beggar Lazarus day after day. When he saw him begging by his gate, that desire led Judas to betray Jesus. It led Ananias and Sapphira to lie about what they'd given to the cause of the early church. It led the wealthy Christians that are mentioned in James' letter to exploit their workers and to hold back the pay. But it was not the wealth itself. It was this unbridled pursuit of it, the lust for it, this desire to have it. And ironically, in their pursuit for gain, all of these people plunged themselves into loss. They plunged themselves into grief. Paul then turned to those who were rich to straighten out their own perspective on money as well. Because if they thought that Uh, wealth and money, if it served as a guarantee for their honor or for respect or for their security and safety, then they've got another thing coming. Being rich in this age, Paul says, it doesn't guarantee you anything. The prosperity gospel that's touted by some in Ephesus, it served in uh, two ways. One was a mechanism to sort of control or modify people's behavior, because if you promise some sort of financial incentive, you could perhaps get people to do a certain things, to live a certain way. So you could control some people's behavior by saying, look, if you follow these rules that I have set up, then, then you're going to get rich. You'll receive money. But the second utility that it had was a little bit more subtle. To think this way, it would serve as, as a sort of guarantee or proof for the wealthy person that they were okay and that they did not need to change. Because if godliness would lead to financial gain, then having that wealth, it must prove one's godliness. The wealth must prove of righteous living. But Paul countered that exactly. Having money is not proof of godliness. Money is uncertain. It provides nothing by way of security or of eternal hope. And so to put your hope in money is complete folly. And it's no mental leap to consider the way that the trouble that faces Timothy and the church in Ephesus. It's not so different from our own experience in 2019. There are those voices who call for some sort of asceticism as if uh, money or wealth itself is this evil that should be avoided at all costs. There are some who would deny uh, any righteous profit making. But I think much louder in our world today are the voices that are on the other side. The voices of prosperity gospel. (laughs) Those are broadcast across the world in large auditoriums, blaring from TV screens on radio programs. It's a pervasive message. It's attraction. It taps right into the desires that many people already find residing within them. It promises fulfillment. those things we already want, the desire that we have for more, to become rich, and it feels like our world, then, is built up around the idea of always needing to attain more, rather than the ideal of contentment. So it's always the next thing that will satisfy, the next model, the next release of whatever item that will bring satisfaction and happiness to our lives. (laughs) The next tier that we can reach is what will really bring us happiness. But Ecclesiastes 5.10 knows the truth of it. Whoever loves money never has money enough. But that desire for money, it drives many of us. Just as Paul warned that such a love would lead to all kinds of evil, evil, the same thing happens to us today. They say that love is blind. And surely the love for riches blinds us. It makes us lose sight of everything else in our life that we may claim to love or claim to care about. Isn't money one of the top sources of tension and fighting in a marriage? How many leaders, politicians, or business people... Police officers, or just people in general, have allowed a bribe for money to completely blind them to their previously held code of ethics. How many criminals in our world have been blinded to the consequences of what they would do by the pursuit of money? How many families have been torn apart at the seams trying to attain more money? How many friends have been betrayed? Because of money. How many of us have been blinded to our morals? Blinded to our love and care for one another. Blinded to our dedication to the truth. In order to attain just a little bit more. Seeking the rich life in our world. It so often leads to loss and to grief. Rather than contentment or happiness or satisfaction. In his book... For better and not for worse, W.A. Mayer, he tells this story of of a rich man who had taken his own life. And in his pocket was found $30,000 and a little note that said this. He wrote, I have discovered during my life that piles of money do not bring happiness. I'm taking my life because I can no longer stand the solitude and boredom. When I was an ordinary workman in New York, I was happy. And now that I possess millions, I am infinitely sad and I prefer death. When we ask material things to address eternal needs, we are always left wanting. Instead of gain, we will find loss. Instead of happiness, we will find grief. And that grief is manifested in that That boredom, that loneliness, and dissatisfaction with ourselves, with angst. It's unrest in our soul, that unsettling feeling that everything that you've done to get to that point, it's been for naught. It didn't deliver. A survey was done by a financial planning firm. And it revealed that of those Americans who had at least a million dollars in investment, only 13% of them actually felt and would consider themselves wealthy. A full 25% of them defined themselves as middle class. Now the survey responses themselves, there was a thread that ran throughout all of their, their what they said and what they wrote, and it was these feelings of fear, feelings of uncertainty regarding their wealth. There was this... Strong concern to preserve the nest egg that they built up for their retirement and all of their savings. So even when we have it, we still do not feel satisfied. Because those people all know it that wealth is fleeting, that it doesn't fulfill, it can't save us and guarantee you anything. It does not prove our godliness, it does not equate to respectability and honor. It does not secure our future. And we know this in our heads. We know this, but sometimes our desire for wealth betrays our hope. And when we feel that longing for the rich life, we've placed our hope in the provisions that God gives to us for enjoyment rather than putting our hope in the provider himself. Now the beauty in this letter is that Paul doesn't disparage Wealth. He doesn't condemn those who have it or those who don't have much of it. Instead, he seeks to put wealth into its proper place. And he points to the real rich life that would fulfill in a way that riches of this present age never could. There is a proper understanding of money. And Paul affirmed that the physical needs and desires of the body, that those are legitimate And that money can help to meet some of those needs. And this is appropriate. So we do not need to resign ourselves to a destitute life as if that would prove our holiness any more than having wealth would prove our holiness. In our passage, Paul even affirmed that God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. The gifts we're given in wealth and money can be used as fuel for good deeds. It can be shared, it can be given away, it can be used to help those people who truly are destitute. But in his teaching on money, Paul continually pointed forward to this coming age. He wanted the Ephesian church to keep their eyes on eternity, not to be blinded by the love for money of this age. Because that coming age, that future age, it has real gain, and that's where the true riches are. And this little section that we've read is peppered with reminders of eternity. Reminders of the life that will come after your life now has ended. In verse 7, he said, for we brought nothing into the world, nor will we take anything out of the world. In verse 12, he says, take hold of the eternal life to which you've been called. In verse 14, keep this command until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will usher in the coming age. In verse 16, he reminds us that God alone is the immortal one. Nothing that we have, not even our own bodies. In verse 17, he says, The riches of this present age are so uncertain. And in verse 19, he says, Lay up a firm foundation for the coming age, so that you may take hold of the true life. See, for Paul, it's not that we shouldn't seek a rich life but we must remember to seek the truly rich life. It is godliness and contentment that will bring the greatest gain. The riches of an eternal reward are what truly satisfy. So, in other words, if you want the rich life, don't seek it here, he's saying. It won't last. It won't satisfy, and it will provide you with no hope. No, if you want to live the truly rich life, then put your hope in God. Then live a life of godliness and contentment. Live a life of faith. He tells Timothy, take hold of the eternal life to which you've been called by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and store up eternal treasures. And this would come as a relief. Paul knew the trouble with money is that whether you have it or not, you will always feel uncertain about it. You will always need more. But if your hope is in God, then there is certainty. And there are riches and the true life. All in the coming age. So what does this type of rich life really look like? What does it look like in flesh and in blood? How can we actually live this way in our own lives? It looks like holding on to the things we have loosely. Allowing you to give and to receive freely. It looks like viewing money simply for what it is. It's a tool for meeting our needs and a gift to share with others. There's a professor at Calvin College who would tell uh, his class, (laughs) the students in his class, that they would regularly see him wearing You know, the same few outfits over the course of the coming year. And that's because he really only had a few basic sets of clothes. And that was on purpose. He and his wife had committed to just living simply. So they shared a car. They lived in a a simple house. They lived a simple life. And it's not that their means didn't allow uh, for more. But here was a picture of someone who lived detached from the things of this world. I mean, his family, they still enjoyed uh, vacations, they still went out to eat sometimes and things like that, but their living was clearly so different from the rest of the world. It was so distinct from the way that people tend to operate, living at the end of their means rather than below, not seeking to attain more and more for themselves, and instead giving much of what they had away to their church, To charities in town. For them it looked like adopting kids into their home who they could love and care for. And amid a world that looks fancy and sparkly yet clearly fake. Like a uh, cubic zirconia compared to a diamond. That that sort of life, it, it stood out as something that was just real. Something that had some substance to it. A less beautiful uh, or sparkly looking life, uh, but more valuable, more valuable sort of thing. It's something like that that leads to this truly rich life. And maybe your life won't look exactly like that. That's not the point. But it's a life that has money in its proper place. It's a life that has Christ as the Lord and Savior and relies only on Him for our future hope, for security, and for salvation. It's a life that's fueled to do good deeds, to live righteous, godly lives. And this sort of living has a dual benefit. There is a benefit for today. Because it frees us up from the uncertainty and from the angst that comes along with trusting in wealth. The practice of holding things loosely, of letting things go easily, The practice of giving things away of our own wealth, it trains us. It reminds us and it proves to us that our hope and security is not in our wealth. But not only that, Paul has been encouraging us to consider the coming age and to store up treasures in that age. There's a reward of riches awaiting those who've lived out this sort of of rich life. In the coming age, we're promised true riches to enjoy. And we don't always talk about that in our faith. But both Jesus and Paul taught this quite clearly. Jesus said in Matthew 6, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and vermin can destroy, where thieves can break in and steal them away, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where thieves do not break in and steal Where moth and vermin do not eat and destroy. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And Paul taught in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and we will receive what is due us for the things that we've done on earth, whether they were good or bad. And also in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says that our works will be tested by fire. And if what has been built up, those works, if they survive the fire, like costly metals would survive a purifying fire, while the the chaff and the straw and debris would be burned up. If what you've built withstands the fire, then he will receive his reward. But, Paul says, if it's burned up, then he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Now this is not to say that your works can earn your salvation. Not at all. Paul has been abundantly clear in his teaching that salvation comes only by the grace of Christ. Not by anything that we could contribute. But our works do matter in some way for the coming age. And this is how you live the truly rich life. What are those riches then? And it's really quite a glorious question to consider. At minimum, some of those riches mean sharing in the inheritance, in the glory and the riches of Christ Himself. It's being welcomed into the kingdom of God with the words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. It's being the reason for a party, for a big celebration at the arrival of a kingdom worker. It's standing before God on that judgment day, asked to give an account to God for what we've done. And before we can even say a word, Jesus steps in and says, ah, this one, I know. I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. I was poor, you gave to me. You cared for me. So come, take claim of your inheritance. Friends, since our hope for salvation is in Christ alone and His love for us is sure, may your hearts be free to release the wealth of the world in order to take hold of that eternal life that He's given freely to us, in order that we might truly live a rich life. Praise be to our God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you pray? God of all creation. We give you thanks for this uh, world that you've given, that you've made, that you've placed us in, given us stewardship over. God, may we recognize it for what it is that you provide, that the things we have are provisions, but that our hope is in you. Holy Spirit, would you build up in our hearts the confidence in that hope and equip us to do good deeds that will store up riches for us in the coming age to which we look forward when we will live and celebrate with you forever. So we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.